Hello. Hello, this is Matt Hale. Hello, Matt Hale. I'm from Art Monthly magazine, and we have a talk show called the Art Monthly Talk Show. We're very inventive with our names, as you can tell from that. And we do a regular programme on Resonance 104.4 FM, or Resonance FM, I'm not quite sure. I think Resonance FM is the right word. And we are all here in the studio, just getting ready. There's three guests, and they've come from Manchester, down in Newcross, and... I'm not quite sure where else, is. and King's Cross, so we're two from London and one from Manchester. However, we're going to be talking about a, rev- a review of a, sh- of, of a big show in Manchester, so, and that's by a, one of the London writers, and we're going to be writing, talking about an article, a feature by another writer who is from Manchester, and then another writer who's... Teaches at, well, do you teach at Goldsmiths, am I right? I do at the moment, I do, Matt, hi. Hello, I hope you, what you guys all heard that. But anyway, we are going to say, I've got Julia Smith, who just spoke, who's an art historian based in London. I've got Bob Dickinson, who's a writer and PhD researcher based in Manchester. Hello, Bob. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) We're just doing our levels as we're we're starting the programme, because we didn't do them before. Virginia Wiles is here as well. Hello, Virginia. Hello. She's an art historian, critic and author. Now, Bob and Virginia have both been on the programme before, and some of you may well have heard of her. Um, heard them speak, I'm sorry, before. Um, consummate professionals, of course. And, um, Julia, I, you, you've not been on the programme before, but have you written for Art Monthly before? I, I should know that, but I don't. I have written reviews before, but this is my first feature. OK, great. Yes, because usually people usually start writing for Art Monthly, do a review, maybe a book review or something smaller, and then a feature comes. So, very exciting. And um, we're going to start talking to Julia about her feature. Um which is basically about the way, I'm not going to say what it's really about, but just very briefly, it's about the way Julia has discovered a lot of artists making work about pharmacology and healthcare. And um, our editors wrote a sort of little piece at the beginning, the top of the page, saying, um, judging by the work of artists such as Jenna Bliss, Lucy Beach and Patrick Staff, is the cure sometimes worse than the disease? I'm not sure if that's completely relevant to your feature or not, Julia. What do you think? I think it is. It is. I mean, I started out um, being very interested in the aesthetic of the work of these artists. So people like Patrick Staff, Jenna Bliss, Lucy Beach, Mariana Simnet. And I was very interested in the way they were exploring essentially the body, but through the lens of medical aesthetics. And I really wanted it to be, in a way, about current events, uh, particularly the NHS crisis. It seemed obvious that there would be a relationship because most of the works I'm looking at in the article were made in the last couple of years. But the more I talked with the artist and the more I spent time with the works, the more I realised that perhaps that link wasn't that direct. And in fact, the work had a lot more to do with critiquing perhaps the power structure at play with the idea of medical therapy. And so in that sense, it's very relevant to say, yeah, that the cure might be the poison at the same time, which is the title of the Jenna Bliss film, uh, Poison the Cure. So it kind of gives a whole imprint for the article, I guess, her work in particular. Okay. Do you want to describe that work, maybe? Yeah, so it's, a, it's I would call it probably a video essay in the sense that it's a quite a fairly long video. It's probably between 20 to 30 minutes. And it's blending documentary traditions with fictional storytelling. And it brings together historical documents, 
mostly to do with the history of colonialism and use of drugs from the 18th, 19th century onwards. So she's looking at morphine and opium, but it's all reimagined in this quite surreal and, as I said, quite fictional way. So there's a lot of montage. And I guess the point, the main, the thrust of the story um, relates to the idea of drugs being used to domesticate certain parts of the population. That's what I understand Jenna Bliss's main interest to have been. She made this film called History of Lincoln Detox previously, which looked at the use of uh, heroin among African-American communities in America. So with this other film, Poison the Cure, she's, it's, the focus is more on gender as opposed to race. So she's looking at drugs, for example, morphine, which were administered in the 18th century to over-educated wives who'd gone out and studied and then married and then following marriage uh, were essentially confined to playing the wives. And the drug was often prescribed for migraines and symptoms, which essentially we now think of as having to do with frustration. And, and stress. Absolutely, and being deeply unhappy and trapped whilst their husbands travelled the world and various colonial... So when you say domestification... Yes. That's what I, got, I got that right. You mean like sort of basically suppression? Yes, and in the case of this film in particular, what's quite clever is that it means both being confined in the house. So the opening scene is this beautiful tea party, and you never see the ladies who are engaging in the tea party. You only see their arms, you know, preparing their cups of teas and, and eventually injecting themselves with morphine. So it is about being indoors and at home as well as really more on a deeper level about being confined and sub submitted to uh, the existing power relations being patriarchal power relations, so their husbands. Okay. <laughs> Sounds awful. <laughs> Where was that happening again? Well, I think Jenna Bliss's work is quite heavily invested in historical research, yeah, even sure. though she fictionalizes a lot of yeah, her no. findings, but she's very much a researcher, and I think the research... I, can't tell for sure because we haven't had a conversation about this but I, it's it seems very anglo-saxon the setting and it moves several of the scenes move between britain the but where's she where, where's she based she's currently based in the u.s but so is she american she is american i think but she was based for quite a while in the uk so the film was actually premiered at raven row she has right. seems to have quite a strong relationship with a contemporary art scene of feminist peers yes. uh, here in London. You, you mentioned some older works. You, you said most of your pieces about younger artists or more recent work. Mm. Sorry, not younger artists, more recent work. But you do mention some older artists. Was, the, this, was there something at the ICA which was about um, art from the sort of protest art or some kind of art about the NHS made in the 70s? Yes. By, by Peter Dunn and Lorraine Leeson. Yes, yeah, so if the the Bethnal the show at the ICA, sorry, um, I started off with because it was the most explicit case of an institution trying to make a link between the history of art and visual culture and uh, the history of the NHS, particularly the history of the NHS under pressure at a critical moment. So clearly, the show was organised at the ICA last summer, I believe, to. Uh, produce, I guess, to speak to what is happening currently with our healthcare system. And the show was titled The Things That Make You Sick. And the, if you posed it as a question, the answer would be The Things That Make You Sick. 
have to do with cutting funding and uh, capitalizing over healthcare and the pharmaceutical industry. And that's very much the message that is at play with these montages that Peter Dunn and Lorraine Leeson produced in the 70s uh, during the first wave of major cuts to the National Health Service, which were supervised, I guess, uh, implemented by the Labour Party. And one of the main reforms had to do with shutting down local hospitals, small neighbourhood hospitals and centralising services. And one of the hospitals that was going to be shut down, that was shut down, was the Bethnal Green local hospital. And what's very interesting about that project is that they were working with volunteers and activists in the community in the East End, but also, from what I understand, from dissenting staff in the hospitals who were so unhappy with the situation that they teamed up with them, creating all these various participatory activities, workshops, critical sessions, and a lot of their activities resulted in producing visual works, which then they used as pamphlets and protest art really and it's quite simple as an idea that's why I really like it because it's very straightforward what they did and the visual the strength in it is obviously the politics which were very direct but also the visual material that was produced is very incisive they use a lot of montage in a typical uh, modernist way similar to the Russian construction (coughs) I was interested in relation to that you said that inevitably their aesthetic feels dated today why inevitably? <laughs> You're not the first one to say this. I feel that the technologies they're using, I mean, don't get me wrong, I am a huge fan of those posters and mm. I think they still read. Perhaps I was wrong to phrase my comment in that way because I do think they're still incisive. But I also think, especially the black and white ones, where the main colours are black and white with red details, which is very. Sounds like Art Monthly. <laughs> oh no <laughs> it's absolutely fine <laughs> well I just felt I guess I wanted to ask why are artists who are working with these technologies of video and internet based forms of collages and montage not interested in making anything that is as direct but which uses the kind of colour schemes, palettes and techniques that are very associated with contemporary production um Yes, I think that's what I was thinking. Yes, but you posed the thing the other way round. <laughs> because it's interesting that the idea that that technique is dated, I mean, uh, because it's a real agitprop technique that is sort of still highly viable, isn't it? Well, I want it to be. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what she suggests? Well, you say it is. I mean, you, you're not yeah. criticising. It's just you don't get given pamphlets in the streets so much anymore. I mean, that's, that's, I mean the, the way people actually distribute ideas is not mm. in that form so much, is it? I mean, it could be. I mean, clearly, many of these artists are not interested in producing mm. that kind of propaganda. And whereas you have people like, I think it was Jeremy Mindella who made those posters mm. um, um, to parody Theresa May's slogans before the elections. Um I think it was stable my ass, safe and stable my ass, or something like that. Yes, but, yes. But these are not. I couldn't find examples, similar examples, with artists interested in questions of healthcare, and that's probably because most of these artists are very interested in a more nuanced. They have a. They are quite mm. suspicious of these services that are um, offered by the state 
So even in the face of major cuts and the threat of perhaps not having access to a service like the NHS, the question still remains that these services have a history of um, exclusion and haven't served well certain communities, including the feminist and LGBT. You mean so they're not dead keen on fighting for them because they don't like necessarily some of the things they've done? Is that what you mean? I may be misunderstanding you. No, I, I think... Um, I don't want to speak for them. I no, think sure. I want to speak for the artworks that they are producing and the artworks are not focused on um, mainstream politics or explicit ideological questions concerning you know, the as future they, of the As state. they might have been more in those 70s oh, works. Oh, so they were yeah. more. I mean, I mean, you do go on to say they did other things as well. Was it them that, that the um, Peter Dunn and Lorraine Leeson also did things about uh, the pill or, 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 or other other specific things that um, the pharmaceutical market and stuff, do they do stuff about that as well? Yeah, so there there's a lot more continuity between the 70s and, and now. today, which highlights the idea that there is an ongoing project and there are ongoing questions. Uh, so they did some posters um, to both provide information about things like contraceptive um, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, but also to critique. There was a whole issue with not only, I think, women generally not being given enough information about these um, chemicals, but also possibly being patronized in the relationship between the doctor and patient was so heavily gendered, meaning the doctors tended to be male, the patients tended to be women, and it just... Um, was quite controversial, um, you know, the introduction of the pill, even though it's generally understood to be a liberating implement of a feminist agenda. A lot of people see it that way. But clearly there were some issues around it as well. I was quite interested in the way that the, the artists we were discussing before that. You said that they did a lot of research, but what they produced was a quite um, a montage, sort of non-specific and not not polemical-like these are from the 70s was because that's quite a lot of people do research there's a lot of research based art made now but it sometimes it comes out as rather dry or rather mm. whereas that doesn't sound like it that sounds quite um well i'm a fan of all playful. the works i talked about in the article yeah. i think i'm very compelled by each one of them which is why i wanted to include them so i didn't want to set up the article as a comparison between now and then i think i had that comparison in my mind in my mind, almost inevitably, I came to it with that comparison and then the more I explored the works and hopefully the readers of the article will get a sense of this, the more I felt there was just a different spectrum of politics to discover in the more recent works, which really has a lot to do with LGBTQ plus struggles against uh, body normative, um, I guess, policies within um, healthcare. So... These artworks, Mariana Simnitz videos, um, Patrick Staff videos, are heavily researched. All of them use a lot of textual sources, history books and fiction books, autobiographies. And you are right in saying that the final result is not um, perhaps direct in the sense that there is a lot of montage and concealment of sources. But I wouldn't say that it's not polemical because, in fact, it is very polemical. Patrick Staff video, I mean, he had this wonderful transgender actress, I believe um, she identifies as actress, recite this monologue from Catherine Bowles' narration of her 
experience with having breast cancer and it's one of the strongest and you know most saddest dialogues monologues that I've um, encountered on video in a long time and so I think that's equally powerful as a montage poster but it, the technique is different so it's interesting to observe that uh, so many artists are using fiction and montage yeah no Bob did you have a question at all did you want to ask anything well no I mean I was thinking uh, that I think there are artists who work who are working in relation to the health um to the health world, to health industries, but they seem to be, in my experience, more in, interested in embedding themselves or working in in relation with patients. Mm. I went up to Preston a few weeks ago f for a whole day, a one-day symposium about a place called Whittingham Hospital, which used to be one of these enormous hospitals for people who are mentally ill. I think it was like the third biggest in Europe at one time. And um, uh, it's been com it was completely sort of closed down in the 1980s, or almost completely, there's a, there's a small part of it left. But there's a tremendous amount of interest in Lancashire and the North West in, in what happened to the people who were there, not just the, the people who worked there, but the people who, who were patients there for years. And there's, there's a, it turned out there's a huge amount of interest in in what's called psychopolitics and in and in the experience of people who've been in hospitals and who've suffered from mental illness. And a lot of the people there were artists who were working on schemes. There was one big scheme in, Amer in Toronto where they've been working with patients from a big hospital to create oral histories and fanzines and magazines and things like that, artists and patients working together like that. And... There was a really good f um, film by a, an artist called Elaine Payson, who's Australian, who'd made a film about a hospital in Cardiff where she was originally born in Cardiff and her mother ended up in this asylum in Cardiff and um, she made a film in, in the old buildings using art uh, with, with, uh, with other art performers, uh, dancers and visual artists doing installations and performances in this in this old asylum and it was a kind of open as an immersive theatrical sort of experience for for people to come and see and it was it, and she and she'd I was I'd never heard of it before it was really impressive stuff I'm just going to read the tiny we probably should move on to someone else's text as well but at the end, end of your piece you say all the works I've considered make a point of discrediting the medical establishment by highlighting the discipline's historical entanglement with sexual oppression which is that's a very interesting thing and I would say to the listeners there's a lot more ideas in this piece that we're not covering because it's quite a complicated thing which covers a lot of areas and, and is a very useful um, read so please do buy the issue and read it more because we can't say everything can we <laughs> today mm. but um moving on probably not with a, a very easy link but um bob do you want to go with your feature which you've written as well now um yeah. <clears throat> it, it, your, yours is a, a, a different kind of thing i'm sure there will be some crossovers which there usually are we, we don't always know what they'll be but they come up when we talk about it and it, it, algorithms is the word i should say loudest in relation to your piece, isn't algorithms, it? Algorithms, yeah. We've got a little sound clip to play, and I'll just sort of talk about what it what it is. But, uh, algorithms are the sort of the, the the laws, the instructions that computers have to tell them what to do, basically. 
And it's in the news this week because um, uh, kids f- uh, f- film uh, children's uh, films on YouTube um, have increasingly been uh, algorithmic, algorithmically generated and... Uh, so you, if you go into YouTube, if you're if, if if you go into YouTube now, if you want to want to do it, you can go onto these uh, uh, children's stations that that you just um, Google uh, and go into on on YouTube. And that and the in the news this week was a was a a, a Peppa Pig video that that has been algorithmically generated, um, and it's a kind of pirate Peppa Pig. It's it's not really suitable for children because in the video, uh, Peppa Pig gets a taste for eating bacon, and she decides to eat her father. Is that cartoon? It's like a cartoon. yeah. Okay, and you was another one something to do with fingers. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to play this. I'll play this first. Sorry, because because this is Finger Family, and Finger Family is one of the one of the basic uh, kids videos that gets algorithmically pirated the most. And when you watch Finger Family, you see a little child. Uh, looking at her hand and onto her hand these little heads pop up and in the original version which we're going to hear the heads are her family, her father and mother and sisters and things but the ones that are algorithmically generated now uh, very strange heads pop up that are, are taken from Disney and from Batman and horror Listen to this. Reminds me actually of when, when I was a boy, we used to do something called Flyaway Peter, Flyaway Paul. Do you remember that? Yes. And we used to basically you put stamp paper that was on the edges of stamps on your fingers or something, yeah. and you'd I, put them on the table, and then you'd put your fingers under the table and putting them up, and then take them away again. It was totally boring, really. But <laughs> <laughs> well, nowadays computers do it for you. You don't have to actually even think about it. They they just do it for you. And a lot of as we've heard just now, that's that is for children, but. Some of the stuff that you find on YouTube is not really suitable for children, and it's because um, uh, uh, it's horrific. And it's, you're saying it's algorithmically generated. Yes. Though. Can you just tell me what the hell that means? Uh, what it means is that there's somebody programming, but they they get the basic uh, instruction, the, the the information that you need to make the video from somewhere else. Yeah, and you just program it to do something, and it will copy it, and so the the, the so the the in the case of the finger family, the the wrong heads will pop up on the fingers, right? Inappropriate heads, and then they do it with uh, other characters as well, and they make them do these right bloodthirsty things. And it's supposed to be funny, <coughs> is it? It probably appeals to to somebody. It's probably teenagers, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not saying they're but, all nice, but I mean, no. it's basically it's a kind of game somebody's playing on the internet. No, I, I mean, I, I started writing this thing because I was really interested in. The fact that algorithms not, not only do that algorithms do all sorts of things, but I was uh, this was actually a couple of years ago. I discovered that 
algorithmic uh, al- algorithms can be used to 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 write about art. Yeah, and I was I was uh, mentoring some. I wasn't some... very impressed with the quote though. No, but the, <laughs> the, 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 this is a guy called Ma- Ma- Matthew Plummer Fernandez, who's a British Columbian artist who's based in in London, and he's got a thing called Novice Art Blogger, blogger, which you can um, you can read on Tumblr. And I mean, it, I was aware of him about two years ago, so I suspect that the technology has probably advanced massively. Well, it has since then. So he, if you go and have a look at what he's done, you can you can see the reviews that this that this um, that this uh, piece of machine learning uh, ha- has has written about images. So it, what it is, it's is it's a it's a computer. You just show it images, and it describes them. So the one I've mentioned here is Barbara Hepworth's sculpture Tides from 1946, which the which the art blogger describes as a metal ice cream is covered in a bowl or then a cup of scissors. Which well, doesn't make sense, a cup of scissors. No, if you look at it poetically, it does. So it's, it's surreal, surrealist criticism <laughs> generated by an algorithm. Very interesting. I don't think it would get commissioned by Art Monthly, I have to no, say. No, but, it, that, but, uh, uh, but uh, since then, um, technology has also started enabling people to generate new works by Shakespeare. Uh, new works by all sorts of people. Um, simply by feeding a computer the entire works of that of that writer. And what you get in terms of output is something that looks a bit like Shakespeare, but then when you look at it in detail, there's no structure. It's just a little... It'll be a speech by a character who certainly probably did appear in a Shakespeare play, but not making that speech. And then a whole lot of other people who didn't, who appeared in different plays, and there's no plot. But, I mean, this is just the latest phase. It, it will advance. It's yeah, of course. very quickly. Yeah, of course. But you, you, have, you have some examples of older work to do with algorithms from quite a long time ago that were not necessarily, you know... I mean, I'll say a long time ago... 68, 70, fairly long time ago. Well, I think, George Knees. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, I think... So there's this interest in algorithms by artists. Yeah. What, do you want to say when that, where, where you found that beginning, as it were? I think it started as when, they, when computers were invented and, and became ev- available. I think a lot of artists started using, trying to invent drawing machines or things that, that could create art automatically. Um, and I think there was an interesting sort of tendency for artists to think of it as a kind of different um something kind of slightly mystical well it is rather mysterious because you're not doing it right you're programming it you're you're telling it to do something but the machine does it yeah one, one point someone says algorithm is art am yeah right? that's right i'm yes. not misquoting now i algorithm is yeah the algorithm is the art is the art um that's uh yes i should uh, know i just quoted it didn't i i'm sorry yeah, no, it's here. It's um, it, it's it's Remco Shah, well creator of Machine Guitars. Well, that's Dutch it. artist. Um, but I think what I what I was most interested in was um, artists who use algorithms in terms of the way that they in in biology in scientific and research and biological research. This work by Heather. Dewey Hagborg, who's an American artist who's who's uh, worked uh, with 
um, DNA phenotyping. And uh, she did a piece called Stranger Visions where, in 2012, where she picked up detritus and rubbish from the streets of New York and uh, used this um, technology to build 3D uh, printed representations of what the people who deposited that detritus and rubbish might have looked like. From the DNA on yeah. the objects? Yeah. And she Sounds did like it, something the forensic police might yeah, well, exactly. do she, or she, begin she, to she do. She did it as a way of of commenting on on surveillance and, and its the, failure, and 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 and, <laughs> no? and it was manu her technology was picked up and used ah. in technology that was bought by the by various American regional police forces as a way of identifying people, and so her kind of nightmare came true, and since then she's been working with Chelsea Manning, uh, and this year she's done this thing probably Chelsea where Chelsea Manning provided her with uh, DNA uh, samples, which um, uh, the artist used to create uh, 3D uh, faces of other versions of Chelsea to show that you know, any one person, genetically, you could, be, you could be male, female, you could be black, white, you could be Indian, you could be Chinese, you could be all sorts of different people. It's just a matter of chance the way you turn out. So if you're going to, so so this piece was a, uh, you know, an interesting um, uh, way of of sort of re reversing the the way that uh, that she'd used, or she she'd used that that technology in the past. Julie, do you want to ask something? Did you? Well, I just wanted to say that I was very interested in the article because mm. I feel that we are constantly dealing with this question of automation, right? And it seems like it's got a big political platform and it's going to be at the centre of the next elections and it, the discussion is always about driverless cars which is sort of like perhaps not the most interesting but I, I guess yeah. cars are being used as a platform to launch this <clears throat> next step in automation. Yeah, through a familiar object. Yes and you have conversations about should we teach cars ethics but you don't have a lot of conversations and are they going to take over all the jobs of current tax Drivers. Sure. But you don't have many conversations about how limited the algorithmic system is at present, how faulty it is. So if I am I right to understand that the reason why um, Heather um, Dewey Hagborg. Dewey Hagborg was getting so many different... The problem with her first experiment uh, was that she was getting these DNA traces, but then when she was translating them into faces, the technology she was using can only approximate generic faces because this technology is born with information in it that tells it average features, yeah. average yes. white features. Yes. Stereotypes. Average, yeah, so yeah. It, that's where the algorithm is. Between DNA yeah. and the final face that you get, there is this algorithm that predicts ab average features. Yes. So it's already... Yeah planned with a very limited range of knowledge, which is why would we replace that as to, you know, our own interpretation process? I feel like it's not very talked about, the flaws of the technology. Uh, as I've said earlier, I think it's the state of the technology when she was doing that first experiment in 2012. I think it's, 
it's, it must have it will have advanced again now and it will continue to advance and she was making a comment about what it could mean back then in terms of surveillance um and yeah it, it's it's faulty but it's like it's it's like um uh algorithms you know, used used to used to being used to write things they they they're getting better that's what's worrying me <laughs> it's yes. not just the writing <laughs> So she was kind of revealing the, cl- and, and, the clumsiness. And, and I think the other thing that, that we are talking about, that people talk about, is computational propaganda, which is this use of... of Tell me about it. Uh, well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's making you... It, it's using Facebook and social, um, social media <clears> to uh, change your mind about things, especially politics. It's, 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 it's Trump, it's Brexit being fought out on Facebook. Yes, with the Cambridge Analytical Group that started it. Exactly, yes, and you British. don't go into that at all, is it? Because it's too obvious, because we've all kn- meant to know Well, no, it. it's because I knew that the um, certain journalists on The Observer right, are doing a big, big investigation into yeah. it, and I wanted to keep... I wanted to know, know about what artists are doing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Because it's not- art monthly. <laughs> <laughs> I have to remind not everyone that sometimes. <laughs> it's an art magazine... <laughs> But art is very broad, as, as Art Monty always tries to prove. We certainly do, generally speaking, on this programme, tend to prove it quite a lot. Because yeah. we do talk a lot about politics. I, I mean, as an as a, an artist myself, not not one who uses a lot of digital technology, I, it, it, we, we, it's amazing how much we don't talk about what is known as traditional art. I mean, no criticism at all, I don't mind. But I, no, get, but I, get, I get lost in the... That's good. I mean... Relating art to politics is very important. What we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I do. I, 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 it's actually well, one of the ones I always have about it, te- all of the technological sort of stuff that artists do- adopt or use. It, it is very important, I think, that they do always not chase it and be used by it, you know, but they criticise it. And, and as you're saying, Julia, yes. Well, I feel exactly as you say, and I think there, it is underestimated how much art and artists historically have told society <coughs> about science mm-hmm. and technology. And this is, um, had a, a Dewey Agbert's exhibitions. I think it's a fantastic case of it looks very seductive. It's very wonderfully produced. It's very, it's a very interesting layout. And at the same time, she is essentially, it's, it's an expose of the limitations and the potential problems of this technology. And the New York Times, all these various uh, news journals picked up on it. And it's not like anyone else was doing that study. No, which is kind of crazy, yeah. because they should be, as you say, but the industries don't really want <laughs> negative <laughs> analysis, do they really? They're trying to say big up more, give us more funding to improve it so they can take over the world? Bob, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I think as long as... I, yeah, I mean, I, no, I don't, I don't sort of think um, taking over the world is, is something that... Uh, well, yeah, they probably will take over the world, but I'm not, I'm not going to give up. No, no. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Virginia, shall we have a go at talking about well, uh, New North and South? Or would you like to say a bit more about this piece, Bob's? Whatever you want to do. No, no, but I think there's a way in from so much I'd like to say more about algorithms. Well, say whatever you like. No, well, no um, I don't know what the time we're is. We're doing all right. We've got 25 oh, okay. minutes, so we're okay. Just about. I, fi- I find that curious. I, I was intrigued with your little aspect on 
the mystical side of algorithms, how they yeah. were, you know, and in a sense, that's what perhaps some artists are picking up, the notion of chance. But I can't, I can't, I can't relate. I can't get those two ideas together, how algorithms can be related to chance when you talk about the notion of chance that they saw in it in the earlier um, examples that you gave of playing with the... Uh, you mean like Jordan electronic Yes, chaos oracles. Um, I mean, I, think it's partly... I suppose a bit like the I Ching, that it's, it's something you can consult and then play with. I think there is something mystical about about you can make it you can turn it into a mystical kind of exercise. Yes, I, I did. A, I did an exercise once using algorithms at um, in Manchester where, where we were doing this public event. It was it was um, you know at a, a venue called the you know, the Corner House, which isn't there anymore, but it was just a few years ago. But I gave everybody an algorithm, which which was a, a series of instructions on what to do when they left the corner house. So, and it was three instructions, and it would be one, turn left, two, turn second right, three, take the fourth on the left. Yeah. And everyone would have a different one, but it was always the one, two, three, three, th you know, a three-phase yeah. thing. So that is an algorithm. You don't need to have a computer to, I see. to use it, to make an algorithm. Yeah. It's just a series of instructions. And, of course, everybody went off and followed their algorithm, and they all got... Lost, hopelessly lost, yeah. which is the point of the exercise. But it's the <clears throat> it's the it's the experience of doing it that turns it into something mysterious or mystical. It can do, it could be. I mean, you can do the idea about these um these uh, f different people being like the DNA could have made you could have been this 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 or this. Yeah, yeah. Th there's chance, isn't there? In 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 that, obviously, yeah. because mm. the chance is you could have been that, not that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an amazing. So that, that's thought, that's chance, but that's chance now with them coming. It's a very untrumpian thought as well. It's like, <laughs> you mean I might not be white, <laughs> I might not be male. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but in a way, um, that you you mentioned the name of the artist earlier on who works with uh, that I'd come across in another article, Matthew uh, Plummer Fernandez. Plummer Fernandez. Yeah. And there was the article on um, by Rob Lafrenet about uh, this this group Biennale, abandoned normal devices, A N D. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've seen that, but it sounded um, as though there were several groups in that show that were playing around, and that will lead me into the Manchester thing um, with. Um, sort of ideas on cosmology and sort of futuristic, uh, almost sci-fi scenarios. And in a way, the, the biggest show that's in Manchester that you must have seen, the Rax, yeah. uh, the Rax group. Um, Media Collective. The Rax Media Collective. The, the show Virginia's reviewed is <coughs> New North and South, sorry, yeah. various venues in Manchester. Yeah. Until 2018, through, through 2018, it says. Yes, well, it's on till April, I think. It's on a long time. Um, and the Rax is probably the, the biggest, uh, the most well-known, let's say, collective. There are only three of them. It's hardly a collective, but a threesome in, um, in India. But they have the largest show of the whole setting because, I mean, New North and South, there are all these different venues. There's uh, Whitworth, then there's uh, Manchester Art Gallery. Art Gallery. 
there's the science museum of science and industry yeah uh and there's a third the fourth one anyway there's rax is at whitworth isn't it yeah yeah whitworth the manchester art gallery and um <clears throat> that that rax group is um is extraordinary really their production i don't know uh, but their 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 work is difficult uh, i think this show made it uh, let's say more explicit than i've ever seen before i've always found it quite hard but what what i'm saying is linking up with the, with the scientific or pseudo scientific aspect of of your work on algorithms is there play with imagination and yet their ex- exploration through it being partly embedded with scientific groups for yeah. a long time is very serious their research absolutely as you were citing with the artists you talked around the yes. Julia. um and i think that um that that kind of uh, exploration is for me one of the most exciting aspects in let's say collective contemporary work today is this linking up whether it be around um, you know pharmaceutical and i think there's a lot more to say on that my god i think the exploration that's needed on links between the art world and pharmaceutical companies that's a whole another article you could yeah. do mention no names but in fact the um, <clears throat> and the algorithm it's interesting how you've played it down i think in your piece i think that that's open, but it's opening up to all sorts of potentials um now i think in a way what was played down to go down to, to the slight irony of this uh, fusion of exhibitions in manchester is that it's announced as the celebration of independence of pakistan of india pakistan and india and then it says in sort of small print and later bangladesh and i have to say straight away that poor bangladesh hardly get a word in the whole show this one artist in the design section that wasn't really very forwarded there's very little on bangladesh but the the issue here is about presentation in a public way which i would that i try to raise in my piece of it being um a, a kind of glorious occasion when it's actually the issue of partition is um in the background it hovers it's hardly anyway it's not something you celebrate so they want to celebrate independence but that that time of so-called independence was a result of this terrible period of partition and that was uh, alluded to by one artist who did a performance an extraordinary performance and very uh, only only slightly to by in in other works so is that nikhil chopra yes nikhil chopra and that, that's even the museum of i couldn't industry. see his whole performance because it was 48 hours but i i spoke to several people who did and i've seen his other his performances before mm. but he linked it very perhaps too literally in one way as i'm going to say with the whole business of the image that everybody has of what happened in partition of bodies draped over trains crossing the lines between uh, lahore and amritsar and um the the the, the bloody awful consequences uh, of the british uh, scuttling the whole situation and the, so in a sense 
the irony here is that this is a show backed by the British Council, by the Arts Council of England, in league with others, and, and announced in this extraordinary kind of neo-colonialist language as being... Um, celebration? A, a celebration to link up uh, and, and fuse uh, former wounds, etc., it does nothing of the kind in my... It, it, the, the, there are artists who touch on those uh, sore links, and one is in particular uh, the Pakistani artist Risham Syed, because she's setting up um, a whole link of, uh, through her juxtaposition of objects and furniture, uh, images and text, the link between what happened in the 19th century in industrialization in Manchester and and what was going on in Lahore, her hometown, um, <clears throat> and that that was very interesting. Did how, how did she do it? Oh, the whole you saw, it's one piece you say suspended bath towels. Was it over a painting? Yeah. No, she had the painting. She did an absolutely exquisite, and that's something that a lot of people don't realise, but she'd done a copy of the painting herself because she's miniature trained. She has an right. amazing uh, handling of the work. And she, what she'd done is she'd done an acrylic copy of Jérôme's The Great Bath at Bursa, a pure Orientalist painting. I haven't got an image. From 1833. Yeah, and it's this black and white women in a hammam. And then By the way, what's a hammam? What's a hammam? A bath, Turkish oh, bath. Oh, a bath, thank you. <laughs> it was not Sorry bath. to interrupt. Turkish bath. <laughs> and she'd plain, simply placed in front of this, she'd reduced it, she'd cut, she'd taken part of it, and in front of this, she'd placed a towel rail, a Victorian, ornate, beautiful wooden towel rail, with a slightly, to me it looked slightly soiled, but anyway, uh, a bath towel hanging in front of it. It was quite incredible, that. It's really good, that. that I mean, there, a there's story. a way that the, mm. those paintings are kind of infiltrating the old Victorian, the 19th century collection yes, at yes. the museum is, is yes. really clever. Yes. And that is in the kind of erotic corner. Yeah. Uh, where the sort of more sort of sensuous Ameri uh, uh, Victorian paintings are. Was the towel kind of trying to make the work come out into the real world? Do you well, see, I'm just wondering just how the towel worked as an art. It's a shock. I mean, you never see... Just because, in fact, it was there. You don't yeah. see a, <laughs> looks a like plain a bath. white bath towel. No, 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 of course not. Or in a pre-Raphaelite <laughs> Orientalist painting, you know. So it was just the reality, physical, the yes, puzzle, yes. the reality of yeah, it. Yeah, I front. thought the word reality would come and into that, and, and that And that kind of was the way she functions. You know, there's a, the Tent of Darius that's reproduced in Art Monthly, she collects old uh, army uniforms, old clothes coming over and she posits them with the badges and she adds objects to them. Uh, she constantly interweaves relics in a way, or, or precious relics of that time with mementos of what uh, of the horror that was going on or the roughness or the, let's say, the exploitation really of um, when you think that... Uh, I think it was interesting when you said that the women in your piece... Um, Julia's piece. Yeah, that, that were over-educated in that example you gave of the relation back to... Uh, yes. Yeah. And I just thought how extraordinary, because I came across this yesterday, I was reading it, and here we get 
1838, which is uh, 110 years before 47, partition was in 1947, in 1838, an English diarist, who was probably over-educated, but at least she knew what to do with her time, not sitting around like your ladies, doping themselves. Maybe she did take stuff, because she wrote very well. <laughs> anyway, she... <laughs> She said she, w- she went to the, uh, through Delhi lamenting the city's steady incorporation into a profit-minded empire, and she wrote, such stupendous remains of power and wealth passed and passing away, and somehow I feel that we horrid English have just gone and done it, merchandised it, revenued it, and spoilt it all. And she goes on to talk about you know the screwing up of the culture that the English managed and how they, the imposition of the English language, you know, which happened at that time already in, uh, you know, a hundred before partition. And then what I witnessed since partition working in Pakistan and India is how now the English language totally dominates social life. And if you're not English literate, you're not going to make it anywhere. And so we're in a a so-called post-colonial situation, which is still, still ongoing. And that's what comes through, I think, in Syed's work. It comes through in... So it is relating it back, in a way, to the tragedy, perhaps not the specific tragedy of partition, but, you know, what happened with colonialism. Anyway. I guess sometimes I'm... A little, um, perhaps you share this sentiment, uncomfortable mm. with the idea of treating colonialism as a as a general phenomenon. Although I always welcome any work that does bring together different histories with the contemporary and try to link up with what is still an open-ended, as you say, saw. Um, but yes, this idea that Victorian ladies would necessarily be over-educated. I mean, obviously, I think I think I wrote over-educated in inverted commas yes, because, of did. course, it's not. Yeah. It's the idea that they were, um, t- not, well, they were not prepared for domestic life in the sense that they had other ambitions which they weren't able necessarily to fulfil within that social context. But then again, there were women who did. So there are writers from that mm-hmm. time, and it's important to also celebrate that and you know to recognize that legacy and not make assumptions about the complete invisibility of women within Victorian society or the generic character of colonialism which in fact was very specific and very specifically tied up to particular territories and events and maybe it's not enough to just talk about colonialism in in the abstract. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree, but she was not talking in the abstract here. She's related oh, no, exactly. very much to Manchester, you know, and that, and that, it's interesting how, uh, well, she was, you know, here to go back to my point of view, she didn't, had an ethnographic approach. She stayed a long time in uh, Manchester and she did her homework, which I felt, you know, obviously, it's not enough money in these things to afford it for everybody to do. But, um, but in a way, you know, Twilight Language, that the, the show of the racks, showing that opening up to the need for new ways of exploring the universe, which is what they're on about. I mean, <laughs> nothing more, nothing less. It's unbelievably pretentious, but it's also incredibly wide and enriching the, the way they, they worked. I don't know, what did you think, Bob, of the, the, that, the one they showed the, the like Cerucide, Alive with Cerucide and Peppered Moth? 
the big. I thought it's. I, I, I thought <laughs> the, the whole. Bridge when you go into the gallery, it's yeah. just it, it's just enormous. It yeah. takes up all the space. Yeah. It's pretty dramatic, and yeah. you just want to sort of hang around and go around it and look look at it from all angles and try and work out what it's. Yeah. What, what it's. it's I like the clocks. Yes, there, these, the there are these huge sweeping yeah. groups of clocks that have marked with, uh, instead of the hours, epiphany, anxiety, duty, yeah. guilt, indifference, yeah. awe, fatigue, <laughs> nostalgia, ecstasy, fear, panic, remorse. And I was thinking, yeah, I can, that's, yeah, I, th- I think I do feel like that at certain times yeah. of the yeah. day. Yeah. You know? Minute by minute. Yeah. Yeah. Just say whose work you're talking about again. It's Rack's Media Rack's Collective. Media. That's the Rack's yeah. Collective. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, about this, what about the one <coughs> on that I think oh, you, you, you might want to talk about as well was, we haven't got along, but it's a no. multi-channel film installation by Naya... Chosky, yes, well, Manchester, I, I, Man, top floor Manchester <laughs> Art Gallery, which you saw as well, Bob, didn't you? I did. Yes, yeah. yeah. so, so there's so to... big video installation of seven screens or yeah. something with with choreographed with, with dancers. Well, pink, yeah, choreographed movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean it, it, on screen? On screen, yeah. <clears throat> and In... it was all set with and done with her friends on the construction yeah. of this ashram, a giant ashram in India. Um, and so there, apparently, yet again, this is to do with chance and improvisation. Yeah, you oh, say right. choreograph, yes. but um, but I am saying yet again that I didn't have enough time to s- solidly watch the videos. There was her videos that were fantastic, and Hetain Patel, there were terrific two videos, very I, very interesting. Disguised as Spider Man. I think the chance thing yeah. with that multi-screen yeah. installation is. I don't know about the, whether it's fully choreographed or not. Yeah. What the, what I noticed was that the the when you're sitting in there and you're looking at one screen mm. and then you're looking at another screen and, and another screen, you want it's such a huge space. Yeah. You don't know which one to to walk, watch for too long, so you yeah. start moving about and you watch other people yeah. in there doing yeah. the same thing. So there is a choreographic yes. Absolutely. Effects on the viewer. Yeah, you participate. Which is very interesting. Yes, indeed. I agree. And that is chance because yeah. it's to do with the way the videos are, yeah. are, are, sing, are or come together at any one time. Yeah, and I think that's very much to do with the articulation of them in space. It was beautifully yes. done, which doesn't work in what's his name, I should, the, the curve at the moment with the six videos in a row where you sit rigidly in front and your eyes have to sort of do a swivel to read all of them. Um, you haven't seen it, at the John Acumphra. No. Yeah, John Acumphra. No, at the Barbican. Uh, over. Just as well, at the very end of your piece, you say the tentative collected a Karachi-based group. Mm. W- w- didn't weren't in the show because they couldn't get a visa from the prison. No, no, but this is happening all but the that's time. A, but, yeah, but it's just classic that would happen for that show, is it? Though that the, the, the British government got, can't give a visa to someone who's coming over to do a show to in a show about partition. <laughs> Well, this is the irony, more than irony. It's I not irony, it's, I agree uh, with you. It's not uh, irony uh, at all, it's uh, terrible. What's happening with, uh, with, uh, uh, with all sorts of things. I mean, the British Council in India, to be quite honest, have, uh, what are they interested in? Obviously, this is done for political reasons, and what, but what they're doing on the ground in India is recruiting students from India who come over here and pay a fortune to, learn, to study in England. So that's where all the money and energy is going. They've turned their art space in Delhi, uh, British Council, into a cafe. Uh, they're selling Shakespeare, do-it-yourself Shakespeare uh, 
rather than art. Is it algorithmic? <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, algorithmic. <laughs> <laughs> and then they talked by an algorithm. Reimagine India. This, the, I mean, it's just uh, anyway. Never mind. The rich cornucopia yeah, of. Yeah. Post-colonialism or something, but, the, but the, it's well worth going to Manchester to encourage. Yeah, well, that's good. No, good for you to say that. Yeah, shows, well, great yeah, shows. Yeah, we would, you would recommend going to not New North and South, and we're going to finish the program now because we're running out of time. Thank you for listening, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, Virginia, Bob, and Julia, Thank for you. coming on the show. And do come on again. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been the Art Monthly Talk Show, and Matt Hale is your presenter. Goodbye. <laughs>